0: Welcome to the New Space India podcast, a bi-weekly talk show that exclusively captures insightful conversations with people contributing to advancement of space activities in India. The New Space India podcast is pleased to announce our association with Dassault Systems, a global leader in providing business and people with collaborative virtual environments to imagine sustainable innovations. Dassault Systems Solutions support startups small and medium-sized enterprises, and original equipment manufacturers in developing disruptive solutions for space launchers and satellite propulsion. Recently, a supply chain digitization study with Dassault Systems was conducted to provide a foundational understanding of the supplier landscape in the Indian space ecosystem. Please use the link in the description to download the public white paper of the results of this study which will also give you a perspective on how ready Indian suppliers are to enter the global space market. Hi, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of the New Space India podcast. And we're very lucky to have here Ambassador Sooth with us, Uh, probably one of the only people I know in India who can talk about the intersection between space and diplomacy when it comes to the Indian context. So welcome to the episode, Ambassador Sooth.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Narayan. I'm happy to join you.
0: As an introduction, you know, we'd love to know a little bit about your career, what uh, you know got you into this context of uh, diplomacy and then later on what was your connection with space.
1: I although by education I did my masters in theoretical physics. But then somehow I went and joined the foreign service way back in 1976. And uh, Normally, you wouldn't expect somebody from the Foreign Service to be talking about outer space-related issues. But then it just so happened that I spent a large part of my career dealing with uh, regional and international and national security-related issues. I was posted in Geneva at the Conference on Disarmament first in 1986 as First Secretary and then i went back there in 2000 as the ambassador dealing specifically with arms control disarmament and uh, security related issues now i think perhaps some of your listeners might uh, recall that there is an agenda item in the conference on disarmament called prevention of an arms race in outer space Now, this item was actually introduced on the agenda of the CD in Geneva way back in 1982 for the first time. 1983 was uh, when President Reagan gave his famous SDI speech, space, you know, the uh, defense initiative where he talked of rendering nuclear weapons important and obsolete. I mean, it was a far-reaching kind of a thing. So from about 1984-85 onwards we have had an ad hoc committee to discuss the issue of prevention of an arms race in outer space and uh, that was my first introduction to the subject and then subsequently I was in Delhi through the 1990s almost for a decade or so a period that coincided with the end of the cold war and uh, the development, and I was looking after, I set up the Disarmament and in International Security Affairs Division in the Ministry of External Affairs. Among the issues that I was also looking at very closely was the issue of dual-use technologies. Because by this time, we had seen the emergence of a number of ad hoc export control regimes. Now, today, we are members of many of these we are members of the MTCR, Missile Technology Control Regime, or the Australia Group, or uh, the vasenaar Arrangement on Dual-Use Technologies and Munitions. We adhere to the guidelines of the Nuclear Suppliers Group, but way back in the 1990s, uh, we were a strong critic of many of these uh, export control regimes because these regimes targeted our domestic programs and i think that uh, it is important to recall so how we eventually uh, how our positions on these regimes evolved and i was very intimately involved in that process i interacted extremely closely both with the department of space as well as with the department of atomic energy and the drdo so that was again Part of what drew me into this particular area of uh, security related issues. And uh, that is how I continued to deepen my interest. And as the area has grown in importance for India and as our positions have evolved, so has, I guess, uh, my personal engagement and involvement, although I left government some years ago. But uh, You know, the idea of uh, looking at these technologies, and today you find this notion of dual-use technologies or dual-use research of concern, DURC as it is commonly called and referred to, in so many other areas. I mean, biotech is a case in point with which we are now increasingly (laughs) familiar with in this age of COVID-19. So how do we deal with this AI, cyber, space? There is an interlinkage among all of these areas. And because they have, they are seen as having uh, uh, serious security-related dimensions while they also have enormous number of uh, civilian applications. Right,
0: thank you very much for that um, insightful introduction as such. So I wanted to learn from you what was the situation back then You know, when you started tackling the issues related to outer space, both from an Indian standpoint, from an international standpoint, where were the convergences in ideas and where were the divergences that you saw from your context? Well, at
1: that time in the 1980s, as I mentioned, the immediate provocation for the inscription of this Item on the agenda of the Conference on Disarmament was developments in the United States. And uh, so naturally, there was a strong interest in the international community taking this up in the CD as an arms control disarmament issue. Remember, way back in 1959, there had already been set up the Committee on Peaceful Uses of Outer Space in Vienna which had two subcommittees, one a technical subcommittee and a legal subcommittee. And however, they looked at it more from the point of view of civilian applications and not from the security-related point of view. So when the Conference on Disarmament started looking at it, it started looking at it uh, from the security dimension point of view because by the 1980s it was quite clear that while there had been a certain architecture of space law that had come into being and here i am talking of uh, you know perhaps your listeners would be familiar with the fact that there is an outer space treaty that was negotiated in 1967 This was followed by the Liability Convention in 1972. We have had the Rescue Convention, which was done even earlier because you know the first beginnings. I mean, today uh, we are looking at the 60th anniversary of the first manned space flight, which took place on 12th of April 1961, Yuri Gagarin, and uh, so immediately thereafter there was an interest. In looking at the rescue of uh, an astronaut or things like that, there was the Liability Convention. Then there was a Registration Convention as the first satellites started. More and more satellites were launched, including for surveillance and uh, space monitoring and early warning of uh, nuclear launches and missile launches and things like that. The Moon Treaty was probably the last of these that was negotiated and that happened in 1984. So thereafter, the space arena has actually not seen any negotiation. You know, what we saw instead was uh, attempts to curb or to control technology proliferation. The MTCR, which was set up in 1987, is a case in point the missile technology control regime. And as you know, the MTCR, when it was first set up, it had a very small, restrictive list of technologies. Over a period of time, that list, restrictive list of technologies was expanded to cover dual-use technologies. So, you know, it became more and more restrictive as it were. Now, so as a result, what we saw happening was that there was an increasingly contentious debate because the US was looking at space as a war fighting domain. However, the key difference here is that at that point in time, a lot of uh, space activity was the domain of governments. I mean, I, was, I remember looking at some figures that um, something like, uh, you know, U.S. and uh, Russia during the Cold War accounted for something like 90% of all space launches. And today that situation is different. I mean, today you've got the private sector involved in it hugely. Today you've got the the situation has changed so dramatically. That uh, you've got companies like SpaceX and you've got companies like Amazon's and uh, you've got OneWeb and, you know, today the number of launches that are being done, the number of satellites that are out there orbiting, I mean, this is, it has changed completely. So this is the transformation that has taken place. And this is something that is going to continue. We ourselves are seeing the fact that you have a podcast of the kind that you have, which is so assiduously followed by people, not just in India, but outside who follow developments in this particular field, indicates the direction in which we ourselves are moving. The same is true with with regard to the development of counter space capabilities. And yet, at the same time, what we find is, that the mechanisms for developing any kind of uh, arms control in these areas to ensure security of space-based assets has remained frozen and hasn't moved very far. And I think that, to me, is a fundamental challenge because uh, how do we deal with this? When you bring up this whole
0: MTCR guidelines and how it was framed and uh, all of this, the whole you know idea of mtcr you know is it reasonable to say that it was a conception to keep you know c- countries like india and you know soviet union back then possibly russia out of the possibility of importing technologies is it reasonable to say that or is it reasonable to say that it was more generic, and US wanted to keep out any other country as well, because at that point of time, possibly, you know, India was building bigger rockets. The PSLV was on the stage, and possibly, you know, liquid propulsion was coming up. And there's a lot of new technologies that were needed to scale up, and perhaps a lot of them also dependent on uh, importing of certain sensors or actuators or other systems that were coming from uh, France or US or other places. So uh, what is your perception of, you know, the the background through which MTCR was framed, viewing from a diplomat's kind of perspective?
1: Oh, uh, MTCR was, in a sense, you know, we launched, while our space program, your listeners are familiar with the development of ISRO, and you had some excellent podcasts earlier talking about the early years of ISRO, Dr. Satish Dhawan's contribution and uh, the shaping of ISRO culture and all of that. But the direction from which I was coming to it was the security dimension. And we had uh, announced our policy decision setting out the Integrated Guided Missile Development Program by the DRDO in 1984 or 85, if I remember right. The almost... Quickly thereafter, very quickly thereafter, you had a meeting, and this was between largely among Western countries, uh, led by the United States. It involved, if I remember right, uh, seven countries. It included France and others. And, uh, and that is how they came together to set up a missile technology control regime, because proliferation was seen as a major security threat. Now, the Soviet Union was not part of the MPCR, although I must tell your uh, listeners that when the nuclear suppliers group was set up a decade earlier, it was after the immediate provocation of that was the Indian peaceful nuclear explosion in 1974. And at that time, Soviet Union was a founding member of the nuclear suppliers group. So in fact, in a sense, there was a convergence of interests. However, when uh, there was a convergence of interests in terms of uh, controlling proliferation of sensitive technologies, because even the Soviet Union did not want to see dual use technologies proliferate to its allies. However, by the time the MTCR came into being in 1987, formally speaking, the U.S. had changed its perception in terms of its desire for using space for military or strategic applications. And so the Soviet Union was also a target of not permitting any sensitive technologies from Western countries to leak to Soviet Union or its allies. This is not so unusual because way back in the 1950s, the first of the dual-use technology control regimes was established. It was called the COCOM. COCOM stood for Coordinating Committee. Coordinating Committee that was set up was a coordinating committee of largely Western countries to control, to ensure that sensitive technologies did not leak into the communist world, to either, uh, say, East Germany or Hungary, Poland, etc., etc. It is this particular COCOM, which was then wound up after the end of the Cold War, and reconfigured into the Vasinar arrangement as the export control regime for dual-use technologies across the board and munitions. So it has a munitions list, armaments and that kind of thing, and the dual-use technologies associated with it. A fourth uh, regime that had been set up just for the sake of completion of the picture was also set up in the mid-1980s and this was the Australia group Uh, this dealt with the technologies equipment and products dealing which had application and into chemical weapons and biological weapons so you know as part of my responsibilities in the Ministry of External Affairs for nearly a decade I was very carefully looking at the evolution of these regimes. And because we were seen as outsiders, as it were, and it began with the nuclear tests of 1974, and then, of course, we had not signed the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. Uh, we were one of the few countries that remained steadfastly opposed to it. And uh, by this time, we had uh, we had developed a certain capability with regard to space launch, space launches and we had also launched our integrated guided missile development program, work on the Prithvi. Prithvi had been tested and Agni was uh, being worked on. So there was naturally a sense among our scientific community uh, that these regimes were designed to prevent us from developing our indigenously grown technological base in some of these advanced technologies. And then once we tested in 199, once we tested nuclear weapons in 1998, and uh, we started uh, also looking at the need that these technologies should not leak out of India So, gradually, we started putting in export controls ourselves on these technologies. We engaged in a series of very intensive diplomatic dialogues, particularly with the United States, and eventually then got the US to support us in the 2008 waiver of the Nuclear Suppliers Group that enabled civilian nuclear cooperation between India and a number of other countries, which then developed a certain degree of confidence. And then from 2010, 11 onwards, we started engaging with these export control regimes. And then during the current, during the previous decade, we became members of the Australia group, the Vasinar Arrangement and the MTCR. So it's been a long process of evolution as our capabilities evolved, as our engagements evolved and as our perceptions evolved. And I dare say as the perceptions of the world about India also changed. It's a long answer but I mean we were really covering a historical period running across decades and particularly the change of thinking that was needed to bring about this shift.
0: One of the aspects here that uh, I wanted to you to elaborate is um what are the aspects that really come under the purview of a diplomat when it comes to space, right? Because, you know, the question is, all the things that you talked about was more about making sure that India is not left out in certain ways, or making sure that the uh, international rule making and, you know, treaties and and laws favor or are inclusive of uh, Indian growth and uh, Indian interests and so on. But then, You know, there are other aspects such as uh, it could be, you know, using diplomacy as a tool for cooperation, like, you know, what the Soviet Union did with uh, flying uh, Rakesh Sharma onto the uh, space uh, station and and then bringing him back. And it could be other such ways. And only now you see some of these regional neighborhood policy with space and, you know, the uh, SARC-related satellite and, you know, a few other things like that evolve at this point of time now given that we've had space capabilities for quite a large number of uh, you know time already how integrated was space as a part of uh, the indian diplomatic core when it comes to using space as an instrument of cooperation or you know some some sort of a intercountry relationship
1: building you know in your memory in this sense with the department of atomic energy we have had a fairly close relationship because the department of atomic energy came under sanctions beginning in 1974 and uh you know we couldn't get fuel for tarapur the americans cut off uh, nuclear fuel for tarapur we had to then uh, look for fuel outside and eventually in 1983 or 84 the french agreed And the French also managed to get the agreement of the U.S. And the French became our suppliers for uh, the low-enriched uranium for Tarapur. Now, um, the Department of Space, we had not had that much of dealings in the Ministry of External Affairs with the Department of Space. But I think what happened was that the wake-up call came in 1992 when the Department of Space got sanctioned by the United States this was with regard to the cryogenic engine deal that we had uh, isro had signed with Glove cosmos now both Glove cosmos and uh, isro were sanctioned which meant that isro which had always had a fairly robust international cooperation network particularly with countries like france and others suddenly found itself cut out from a number of uh, its traditional cooperation networks and it impacted a lot of ISRO's procurements of sensitive components, which, of components, te- technologies, materials, etc., which now got labeled as sensitive because we were under sanctions. Now, mind you, these sanctions are unilateral sanctions imposed by the United States. You know, uh, it is not as if these sanctions were imposed by the U.S., but then the way U.S., uh, this is what you would call an extraterritorial application of U.S. law. So, let's say if the French continued their dealings with ISRO, then the u.s law is that since u.s companies were barred from dealing with india if there was a french company that dealt with india in the same areas that french company would be barred from any business with the u.s and their assets could be confiscated by the u.s now since the u.s is a major partner for let's say i'm using france as an example but it could be any other You know, the French company would obviously hesitate to engage with India, but this is because of the power of the overwhelming economic clout of the United States. I mean, it is not as if France has sanctioned us. France did not sanction us on the Glove Cosmos-Isro deal of the cryogenic, but it had a negative impact on Isro's capabilities which still required a certain amount of uh, uh, procurement from abroad and so then came the issue of how do we rectify the situation. This, In fact, the situation then became much worse with 1998 nuclear tests because then we came under even heavier sanctions and a hell of a lot of ISRO itself as an entity, it was not just one program but the whole thing that was came under sanctions. So one of the first things that we did when we opened up negotiations with the United States, post the nuclear tests, was to show them that ISRO was not involved and we had to make it very clear to them that ISRO was a civilian entity. It was not involved in making missiles. There were no leakages of technology from ISRO to DRDO, the missile-making units came under DRDO. It was not as if ISRO was uh, producing, you know, propellants for uh, to be uh, for our missile program and things like that. And we were then able to get them to lift the sanctions on uh, ISRO by, I think if I remember right, the first relaxation of these sanctions started taking place in uh, february of 2000 after about uh, 18 months of talks and then gradually we were able to get all these sanctions lifted by about 2003 or thereabouts when we signed the next steps in strategic partnership with the united states so that's how the engagement between department of space and the disarmament and international security affairs division began in terms of because they suddenly said well who do we go to now uh, before that uh, they didn't think that there was anybody in the ministry of external affairs who was tracking these things or who was following them or who was looking at the evolution of u.s and international law in these areas the second aspect where we worked together with isro was uh, when isro also realized that we could play a role in promoting international cooperation. So, you know, ISRO had bid uh, to set up the regional center for space science and technology education in India. It was a UN-related uh, uh, entity, and they were wanted to set up something for Asia-Pacific. And ISRO had bid for it, and uh, China was also very keen that they should be hosting it. So, you know, I still remember uh, this was during the time of Dr. Kasturi Rangan, and he was uh, chairman of ISRO and secretary of space. He sort of told us about it and he said that, look, you know, we would very much, we think that it would be a great feather in our cap if we could be the ones to get to get the international community to agree to um, have this here. Now, uh, because of the fact that we had these other sanctions and other issues pertaining to hanging over us, so it became a diplomatic challenge that we took on. And I still remember at the last meeting that we had, this was sometime in the 1990s, towards the second half of 1990s, the last negotiating round that we had uh, in uh, Delhi, the meeting was taking place in vigyan bhavan the negotiations were continuing we had uh, all the countries of the asia pacific region represented and eventually the idea in these things is not to be able to bring it to a vote but to actually get a decision because if there is a contest then you know one side eventually sees the writing on the wall and withdraws and dr kasturi rangan was sitting in his office waiting to hear what was happening he was you know the department of space office was in loknayak bhavan in uh, delhi near khan market and we were at vigyan bhavan uh, this was before mobile phones and all of that <laughs> came into common use so i think it was close to midnight when i finally went back and said the chinese have withdrawn and, you know, he said that only with MEA's help could we have achieved this. We On our own, we would never have been able to. Because, you know, we pulled out a lot of diplomatic stops with the number of small countries in Asia Pacific and so on. And uh, so we ended up hosting this. Uh, and then the Chinese got so angry a few years later, <laughs> they set up almost a parallel outfit but it didn't have the same let us say the same u.n stamp the u.n center which we set up which is now located in deradun as you as your listeners probably know so this is how you know a mutual trust and a respect for each other's capabilities uh, grows and uh, and i do think that in today's age it is extremely important for our uh, departments like uh, ISRO's Department of Space or Department of Atomic Energy. Or for example, I mean, subsequently, I became closely involved because when I was ambassador in Geneva, that was, you know, I told you I went there in 2000 dealing with arms control disarmament issues. That is the time when uh, we were also negotiating a verification protocol for the Biological Weapons Convention. And so I was very closely involved in the department of biotechnology in terms of looking at uh, and precisely the areas we were looking at uh, were at that time, CRISPR and Cas9 had not even come into existence. But there was all, of course, the DNA had been decoded. The, human ge- the first human genome sequencing exercises by Craig Winter were uh, being undertaken and uh, there was already a glimmer that this technology could change the way biological weapons could be designed and at the same time it was also clear that this technology of gene synthesis and synthetic biology could have enormous civilian applications now of course at the last minute in 2003 the verification protocol negotiations came to a very abrupt end because of A lot of uh, angry words being exchanged between the U.S. delegation and the Iranian delegation. And as a result, the conference was put into abeyance and it has never been resumed. So that is why, for example, the Biological Weapons Convention today does not have any verification provisions But, uh, you know, so, but the point of this thing is that there is a very close interface because as we start dealing with uh, dual use technologies, the notion of the manner in which we start looking at security issues has to get modified. And uh, the whole notion of arms control undergoes a transformation. See, the old treaties, the way they were concluded was largely between, were largely a product of Cold War. Because along with, uh, when the UN came into being in 1945, and by 1949, NATO had also come into existence. So, in a sense, the US-Soviet divide got formalized. So, all this arms control that we saw taking place, took place in a bipolar context, in the context of two nuclear superpowers, as it were. And uh, their objective was all, and these technologies were under state control. So today, when you are looking at uh, these technologies, you are looking at uh, normative approaches, you are looking at codes of conduct and things like that, which is a very different way from simple arms control negotiations which are led by states and governments to what we are today increasingly calling the multi-stakeholder approach you know i mean that is why if you notice you have ongoing discussions on things like internet i mean how do we we still don't know i mean we keep having these conferences about uh, managing the internet or uh, but it's extremely difficult because these have become. Uh, These have become technologies that have become so, which have such a huge role in the private sector, that the private sector has become the leading technology developer in so many of these uh, areas, and it is no longer the preserve of governments. So, security has shifted from the idea of either seeking dominance or preventing the other chap from gaining dominance to something like a mutual security, to something like a sustainable security that enables civilian activity to continue, in fact, to grow, because that has so much of economic implication. And yet, at the same time, is not uh, misused. I mean, you take space for that matter. I mean, just look at the application and look at the whole thing of, Weather, communications, mobile telephony, navigation, GPS, I mean, remote sensing, uh, things like these ride-hailing apps like Uber and Lyft. I mean, (laughs) all of this depends on satellites that are dedicated to civilian applications and make use of the space technologies. And yet, if you think about it, GPS was not developed by civilians. So many of these foundational technologies got developed as defense-related technologies. And uh, that is one of the challenges of the search for sustainable security in today's world. Because in today's world also, you, you are no longer looking at a bipolar world. I mean, it is no longer just two countries that are going to call the shots. There are many more players. So, it's a multiplayer in terms of countries. uh, There are more countries that are involved. And in terms of entities, it is no longer just government entities. I mean, we ourselves are talking about uh, having a space law uh, that can permit uh, the growth, development and growth of our uh, new space entities on you know that is how you and i in fact have uh, got to know each other because and from the paper that i have written promoting the idea of legislation that could regulate the growth of uh, our space industry because it has so much potential for our socio-economic transformation which is an absolute key for india's development but The point is then how do we ensure that when this technology gets diffused, then how do we ensure that the same sense of protection or uh, ensure that wrongful application does not take place because um, even inadvertently, because very often it is inadvertent. And that was actually how some of these uh, controls came into being now that we have these controls initially i can tell you when we were trying to uh, talk about these controls my colleagues in department of space and department of atomic energy they used to get very upset they used to tell me why are you recommending this this is our indigenously developed technology we will give it to whoever we like so i said hang on yes you do that i'm not saying you don't but all i'm saying is that you better be careful that you know the background because you know we Uh, where I was sitting in the Ministry of External Affairs, I was quite aware of how false fronts were being set up. I had followed the Pakistan's clandestine nuclear program very closely. I had also seen the use of chemical weapons in the Iran-Iraq war. And I saw how the Iraqis actually by talking about, uh, were importing certain dual-use chemicals from India by claiming that they were meant for fertilizer factories in Iraq, when actually they were being diverted for chemical weapons purposes. Now, uh, while I have no difficulty for Iraq importing chemicals for fertilizers, uh, but, you know, when you look at the quantities involved, I mean, you wonder, well, you know, (laughs) how much fertilizer are they going to use? and so some of these nitrates and so on and uh, uh, you know phosphorus based chemicals were being used actually for making chemical weapons you uh, know we don't want to be accused of being irresponsible in terms of today's age of globalization we don't we always try to project ourselves as a global as a responsible global citizen so we don't we wouldn't like to be so this always you know so I, it was a process of actually assuring them that this was not intended to in any way, you know, constrain their technological development or anything like that, but to ensure that they remained in good international standing, which was also something that ISRO scientists or nuclear scientists in atomic energy also valued hugely.
0: What was interesting then, what you said is uh, this whole art of negotiation between diplomats and countries and, you know, coming to a point where you want to make it a point that there is something to take back for us in in this case. So, can you provide any like perspective on how a country like US or diplomats from the other side are able to, you know, take you into confidence to your word that, for example, there will be no leakage of uh, technology from Israel to the military or things like that, right? Because at the end of the day, it's all Indian institutions and they have to take your word for it and say that you know we're going to trust all of this that you guys are saying and it's an art possibly just convincing them that they need to take you to your word and you know this is what the promise will be but then there's also a method that they need to have to possibly verify at the same time that this is what is happening on the ground as well but i guess even uh, the verification comes after they have trusted and you know they are following the developments but even before that before that you'll have to make a case and you know, that needs some kind of trust to even get that confidence to to take the next step. So how does this really occur in, in diplomacy?
1: Well, I mean, you know, one enormous difference between, let us say, uh, a country like the U.S. or a country like India is that in the U.S., it is very clear that the Department of State is the authority responsible for all external relations so let us say if department of defense or department of health security or department of uh, uh, narcotics or uh, department of uh, treasury or any department has to engage in any discussion with any foreign country or any international body on a technical issue which is under the purview of that department It cannot take place without a representative of the State Department being present. Now, actually speaking, we also have a similar rule. You know, the Cabinet Secretary of India has something called the Rules of Allocation of Business. And the Rules of Allocation of Business make the Ministry of External Affairs the agency that is involved with all external relations with all countries as well as with all international organizations etc etc however given the fact that we perhaps did not develop adequate coordination processes between ministries so we have had this tendency of working in Silos, as it were. And that puts us at a disadvantage in many of the so called technical negotiations. And I I say this uh, because, and this means to get over this hurdle, it requires two things. First of all, I have to gain the trust of people in ISRO or in the scientific departments that look, I am on their side, that we belong to the same team that I'm only trying to help them. And that is very important. And somewhere there, this is where I think some of my long years of experience of dealing with these issues, and plus maybe the fact that uh, I could understand a lot of the jargon um, which people were using because of my own science background and my interest in having followed these technological developments was useful. And that helps to bring about an element of trust. Then comes the other issue of then we present ourselves as a team. For example, when we got the NSG waiver, I mean, how was it? Was the negotiating team? The nuclear dialogue began with the U.S. between Strobe Talbot and jaswan Singh, the late, uh, who was, and you know, we had. Uh, almost 18 rounds in 22 months. And, but it was backed up with technical talks and things like that. So, uh, and from there, as it moved forward, our delegation always had people from the Department of Atomic Energy, whether it was the chairman Atomic Energy or some of his other officers who were also part of it and things like that, who were part of it. Now, because... But then it has to be a team effort, and without that, it would not have worked. Now we know that. I mean, let's take the late uh, former president of India, Dr. Abdul Kalam. Okay, everybody knows that he started out with this rope, right? Everybody knows that he was working on liquid propulsion engines, and everybody knows that he went moved to DRDO. <laughs> where he was working on missiles. I mean, it's common knowledge, right? So everybody knew that there was a certain osmosis. There was a certain implicit tech transfer, knowledge transfer, because of scientists moving from one to the other or scientists even meeting and discussing problems. I mean, you know, if there was, if Dr. Kalam in his missile program was came across a difficulty that you know he felt and he felt that maybe i should talk to somebody in his who was working on this because i remember he had this uh, expertise in this particular field and let's see if he has worked a little bit more and what has he come up with and whether he has faced a similar problem he would fix a meeting and go across and meet him and they would meet as old friends and over their uh, dosa they would uh, you know take out a piece of paper and figure out what was going wrong in your calculations or in the other person's calculation. Now, but you know, as you develop, because ISRO has always maintained itself as a civilian organization. So somewhere then you will have to realize that you need to draw lines because while your missile program is a vital part of your national security interest, if you want ISRO to have an existence as a civilian entity then isro cannot have a foot in both camps i mean it cannot be involved with making missiles because then it will need to have very different set of knowledge controls and export controls and security checks and all of that you know which is the way we deal with things in our defense establishment and uh, so i think this realization that uh, also took a long time in coming about in our scientific establishment because, see, our scientific establishment because it had been it had gotten cut off uh, in the seventies, and therefore uh, there was a feeling that whatever we have done is has been done by purely domestic effort, and therefore nobody else has the nobody else should be able to tell us how to behave or how to control or what to do with our indigenously developed capabilities. But that's not it, because ultimately you are also wanting to gain a certain acceptance, as I mentioned earlier, as a responsible global citizen. So for a diplomat, it is very important, as I said, it has to work in two stages. One is, first, I have to gain the trust and I, I have to get my own scientific colleagues to believe that they and me, we are on the same team and we have the same objectives. And then, because I can speak the language, so I, and if I don't have the same scientific background, then I must have the patience to learn about it from them. I must develop a degree of empathy to be able to understand their concerns. And they must have the trust that I can now. Uh, convey their concerns and safeguard their concerns in an appropriate manner when it comes to negotiations outside, whether in the UN or in the MTCR forum or with uh, France or with US or with any other country. Because I also will combine with it the diplomatic jargon. And I would very much like that and I tried this, but unfortunately, our foreign service is such a small cadre that we have very, very few officers, and that's a whole different uh, issue altogether. Uh, that, uh, But I had also managed to get Department of Space at that time, at the time of Dr. Kasturi Rangan, to agree that, you know, the idea of having a person from the Ministry of External Affairs posted in Bangalore with the Department of Space to deal with external relations, to act as the interface between Department of Space and Ministry of External Affairs on a regular basis. Because this is the only way we will develop the comfort levels needed uh, to work as a team together. That's
0: very interesting. And the outcome is, uh, do you have a person dealing with uh, in Bangalore
1: from as an MEA representative today? or No, unfortunately not. I mean, you know, we, uh, they, they, you know, Department of Space. When I mean, you know, Dr. Kasturi Rangan, when he saw how we could, how we were negotiating, how we delivered this or that for the Department of Space, I mean, he agreed. Department of Atomic Energy, incidentally, has a person from MEA always located in uh, Bangalore who handles the external relations aspects and particularly with the IAE in Vienna, also and so on and uh, works closely with the chairman of the Atomic Energy Commission on these issues. Um, I think that has happened largely, it happened in the 60s largely with because of Homi Bhabha's vision, as it were. Uh, somehow or the other uh, space Department uh, of Space didn't get this, but I do hope that uh, since you have a very loyal following, I hope people are listening and I hope uh, this is something because I strongly believe that this is an idea whose time has come and that is one way and I think that uh, there is also an interest in our own, in the Ministry of External Affairs, that these issues are not technical issues. You know, very often, many of my, when I was uh, looking after the disarmament and International Security Affairs Division. And uh, some young fellow, some undersecretary who had joined the Foreign Service, say, five years ago, and he had come to join this division. And he would come to me, and initially he would be very excited. But then uh, when I asked him to do some work on a particular problem, and then he would come to me and say, but, sir, this is too technical. Uh, I mean, I had a very clear answer. I said, listen. If this subject is the subject of negotiations with another country, and that is why
0: we are in MEA, right?
1: The negotiations are based on politics. There is no subject that is too technical. I mean, if a country wants a particular product to be put on a control list, they will use a technical argument. But behind that, there is a political purpose. So if you don't understand the technology, you will not be able to understand the politics. So don't come and tell me that, you know, because let us say we would uh, get suggestions. Um, This was during, as I said, the biological weapons verification protocol negotiations. We would get suggestions about putting product A or B or C on a control list, or A should be on a more sensitive list and B should be on a less sensitive list or whatever it is. And people would say, well, how? Okay I'm not a biologist but I must have access to my expert community to ask them where do we use this and if this is a proposal that has come from say Germany why does Germany want to tighten the export of this or put the relax the export of this and so somebody who's in the technical field can explain to me Germany's commercial interest Now, if I understand, I don't need to know the formula of the product. But I need to understand that that is why it is the subject of a negotiation. Because ultimately, it is politics. See, therein lies the difference. So, I would say that, therefore, we should get out of this idea. Because when we are negotiating, it is always politics. I mean, why did... I mean, how is it that suddenly the... Our, uh, we came under the severest of sanctions in 1998 after the nuclear tests. And how is it that we were able to get the only country in the world to have got a waiver, a clean waiver, that without signing the NPT, without giving up our nuclear weapons, we were able to get a waiver for to enable us to uh, engage in civilian nuclear cooperation um, by the Nuclear Suppliers Group because we changed the political perceptions, right? And we couldn't have done that if we did not have the trust of our scientific community, and it would not have worked if we had not convinced our uh, interlocutors and the people we were negotiating with in terms of bringing about a change of perception in their minds about India, what India stood for, how India could be a partner rather than a potential adversary, and why they should start looking at India differently.
0: You know, I want to skip to uh, more recent times of uh, what is your assessment of uh, how space has formed a part of the, you know, diplomatic negotiations or uh, you know, all of this neighborhood policy and everything, because uh, I don't know much about diplomacy or anything of uh, history of diplomacy when it comes to India or so on. But then from what I've at least really followed in the recent times, uh, only now you know you, you see uh, the prime minister directly talking about you know space as a SARC satellite or space as a part of the foreign policy with NAVIC or other such instruments, or even, you know, people uh, talking about how the whole Mangalyaan mission was a huge uh, soft power uh, approach to using space as a part of, uh, you know, enhancing soft power of India globally and everything. So in your assessment, is this something that the political establishment in India is now using or has you tried to mature this as an idea of diplomacy or... Has it always been and it's only highlighted now because of the media and the press? Or what is your kind of assessment? or And also, what do you see as lost opportunities in using space as a part of
1: diplomacy? Well, I think what has happened is that as we have developed our capabilities and as we have intensified our engagements with the rest of the world, we have been more willing to talk about it. And talk about it as something that, after all, today let's face it, we are one of the handful of countries uh, that have an absolutely impeccable record in terms of satellite fabrication, satellite applications, launch technologies, a range of launch vehicles, tried, tested, cost-efficient, and so on. And uh, and as Uh, civilian interest in space has grown. As I was telling you earlier, the space activity was dominated by governments. During the Cold War, as I mentioned, 93%, and the Cold War was there till 1990, right? It is only in 1991 that the Soviet Union broke up. So, in a sense, that till that time, 93% of all space launches were done by U.S. and USSR by NASA, which is a government entity, and the Soviet Space Authority. And if you look at 2020, 90% of all satellites that were launched were belonged to the private sector. I mean, look at the transformation. Well, it is hardly surprising, therefore, that, you know, so many entities that are getting into the space sector, But don't have launch capabilities. They do a market survey, find out which has a good record, which is financially viable for them, which is cost efficient for them, and then they approach ISRO. Now we and ISRO. I mean, it is only in the 1990s that ISRO set up the Antrix Corporation, and uh, now of course we've set up uh, the New Space India Limited. And uh, and I, you know, although there again. I think we should be able to give it a little more autonomy, put it a little more at arm's length. <laughs> you know, we still have too much of uh, uh, the all ev- everything under one tent, as it were. But hopefully we should get that. And as you get that, because that is the only way we will see the growth of uh, our space entrepreneurs. I mean, you had a podcast some time back where i think you were discussing with somebody about why indian space entrepreneurs find it easier to set up offices or set up uh, operate from outside i forget the name of uh, one of who you were talking to but so wh- why is that i mean they, f- they felt that the environment here was not as welcoming or as conducive now so i think it is important that we create that conducive environment at home. If we want our uh, private sector space capabilities to develop, and that is what I have in fact written about, that looking at uh, the potential for this, um, it is absolutely critical that we are able to harness these enormous applications for which the field is now opening up. I mean, ISRO has done its job, as it were, by providing us with that wherewithal now it is the job because see isros capabilities are in that sense limited after all isros budget will increase by 10% a year i mean you know it can't increase by 100% year after year after year but if we are looking at an an annual compounded growth rate of 15% 20% in the space industry then where is the investment going to come from And it can only come from the private sector and it can only come in a more conducive environment, in a more welcoming environment. So I think that what we are, what we have to look at is therefore just as other foreign companies find it useful to come to ISRO to for their launch services or any of the other services. I think we, should be able to create an ecosystem where we allow our own capabilities to develop to leapfrog, in a sense, so that we can get uh, much higher rates of growth.
0: One of the interesting ideas that you talked about, especially this MBA representative, you know, takes me back to potential comparison with China, uh, which is giving out free satellites, free launch slots to other countries, and you know, really combining them and you know, also integrating this whole space infrastructure into brick projects and big uh, topics like this One Belt, One Road initiative and others.
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, the space dimension is a huge element of the One Belt, One Road. In fact, if you look at it, this is how it comes together. Now, you know, the prime minister, let me put it like this. Now, let's say the prime minister is uh, planning a speech for a SARC summit. Now, he's not going to write that speech himself. He's going to ask people in the foreign ministry who deal with SARC to say, look, I'm going for the SARC summit, but I want to look at some new areas. So, now, if the person in MEA uh, who's dealing with these SARC issues, if he's only going to look at SARC free trade area or SARC water sharing, you know, these are the traditional bread and butter issues as it were. Because we share boundaries, so we have shared water resources. So you do water management. Again, we talk of commercial uh, interests, economic interests. So free trade, we do uh, investment promotion. You know things like that. But let's say if you have to look beyond, then first of all, you must be aware as to what your own capabilities are. Isn't it? And that is how we have now started. I mean. The IT sector, for example, has become a big thing. India as an education hub, as a knowledge hub, has become a big thing. India as a health service provider, you know, health tourism, the number of people. You know, I served in Afghanistan. I was ambassador there, and I remember the number of medical visas we used to issue for Afghans for to come and uh, get treated at hospitals in and around Delhi. And uh, in fact, while I was there, you see, because in Afghanistan, the medical infrastructure had been completely destroyed. And uh, so our private hospitals like Apollo, like um, uh, Escorts like and others, they used to come there, set up medical camps. So they would bring a doctor or two doctors or something like that, set up a medical camp for three, four days, do certain tests and where people needed more tests or where people needed other interventions and they would advise them accordingly. And then those people would go to come to India and, you know, things like that. Similarly, in the age of telemedicine, I mean, I remember uh, in, when I was posted again in Nepal, uh, we set up a telemedicine link with the uh, Apollo hospitals uh, and a local Kathmandu-based hospital. Now, we can do this provided you are aware of India's capabilities. And that is how projection of India changes. And people speak, you know, in the old days, you know, it was all very well to think of India as the country of Maharajas and the rope trick and the snake chargers and <laughs> I mean, but I think that in the 1990s, thanks to the IT, we have changed that. So, with the IT boom, with with uh, our emergence as a nuclear weapon state as a major uh, nuclear power, our emergence as a tech power. Now, COVID has shown. I mean, how many people before how many people before COVID knew that we were the powerhouse of uh, vaccine production globally? But now everybody knows that, that some of the largest vaccine-producing companies are located in India. Again, you know, we have done some pioneering work here. So some of the new developments, particularly on child-related vaccines, the the pentavalent vaccine that was developed by Shanta Biotech in Hyderabad, which was subsequently acquired by Sanofi Aventis, a French company, because of the incredible R&D work they had done. You know, so what I'm saying is that unless we ourselves first, the diplomat, so if, let us say the person who's doing the SARC speech, if he has some idea, then he will say, well, how this would be something which would be unique because no other SARC country can match match an offer like this. And that is how something like this would come up. And that's how the concept of SARC satellite comes in. So I think that we... First of all, as I said, my you know one of the points that I made earlier was that we should get out of the notion of working in silos or thinking in silos because that narrows your vision, and uh, that is what is critical.
0: Yeah, 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 absolutely. And in fact, you know the the opportunity that I also see is uh, you know today, like in other sectors, like you said, uh, even in the biotechnology sector or so on, the government is using private sector capacity as a part of its uh, diplomacy initiatives as yeah. well right and space absolutely space as a part of it can you know take it to that level as well because at the end of the day today you have so many of these companies who are willing to invest more and do more and scale up to a lot of initiatives but you know we are not there yet as in we're not still knocking on those doors in, in with respect to space
1: yes I, unfortunately that is and i think that what we need to have Uh, I think your listeners would know we had a draft space uh, activities act, which then lapsed when, uh, you know, it didn't get taken up. And just as well, perhaps, because I I always thought that that was somewhat too restrictive and the kind of act we needed was a more liberal, a more uh, open act and uh, where the entities would be less tied to the ISRO apron strings, as it were. You know, whether it is with regard to, I mean, although ISRO keeps talking about commercialization of launches and about more and more applications. So we need a satellite communication policy. We need a a remote sensing policy because some of the old policies that we've had are two decades old. And uh, we need to update those to take into account where we are today. See the whole investment culture has also changed. 20 years ago or 30 years ago, you didn't have the uh, investment culture of seed funding and uh, seed capital and series A and venture finance and series B and you know all of this. All of these instruments are a reflection of the new economy. That we are talking about and this it is essentially the digital economy and the digital economy is driven it can't it, the digital economy essentially could not have happened without large-scale computing capabilities and large-scale internet speeds all of which requires space assets i mean so there is a seamless link here which our administrators and people in government need to be able to understand in order to be able to unleash this and open this up uh, so that uh, it no longer acts as a constraint, but actually becomes an enabler. Right. And, you know, one of the things uh, that
0: is very interesting here is uh, there are other things that are not in the control of even ISRO, for example, that stops... Uh, let's say the growth of the private sector in my opinion which is topics like you know procurement rules and the manual for that is set by the government of india when it comes to procurement and every other institution of the government of india procures around the same manual and the same rules and guidelines and the inflexibility of that when it comes to technology and technology based procurement is a direct effect on how you know space or the growth in the space industry can happen and so for example you know there's a lot of procurement innovation across the world when it comes to space agencies space agencies are uh, doing you know different instruments of public private partnership that does not involve creation of uh, you know new entities or special purpose vehicles as such but the entities remain but the instruments of procurement change by you know sharing risk and, and enabling IP creation based on risk and so on. But unfortunately, you know, you look at the procurement manual that Department of Space has to engage with the industry. It's the same old rules that doesn't allow any kind of uh, intellectual property development that involves risk. And there's only one means of a development order that ISRO can provide, which has, a you know, again, a, a limit on the budget, as well as how the IP is created and involves a lot of... Uh, Red tape again going on all of this, and they can't create any special procurement rules for special technology areas. So, for example, if ISRO wants to create uh, an all-electric propulsion system, uh, and you know wants to create it to now instead of investing ISRO's own resources, and which would take it twenty years time, uh, there could be you know a special procurement vehicle or a, or an instrument created that says ISRO wants to procure or develop indigenous technologies in. You know, electric uh, propulsion, and we want to be able to select five or six vendors in India in a way that there's a competition between these vendors alongside ISRO, where ISRO is managing the technology development, overseeing all of this. But then these five vendors are competing, and ISRO is supporting them in one form or the other, and there's some investment coming from them and some investment coming from ISRO. But then the there's a competition between the, these players to advance that and to be the first as such, and even if they, some of them fail, they, they they get the knowledge and they get to absorb that, and they may use it in some other forms in some other projects, as such. So these are you know some of the very new instruments, and this is how the U.S. Uh, the NASA administration is completely changed, transformed procurement in the last fifteen years. This is what the Japanese are doing. This is what today the Europeans are doing. But unfortunately, I don't see anybody thinking in India in this sort of a direction as well. And I don't think so the people at ISRO can take this up as a topic on their own, right? There should be somebody at the federal level thinking about these and saying, how can we give autonomy to these kinds of uh, you know institutions that are driven by technology so that they don't go, you know, the, the gap between them
1: and the developments internationally are not too big, for example. I, I fully agree with you. And again, it is, I mean, uh, it is completely understandable you see the guys who have framed these rules which are applied in a with a great sense of uniformity as it were whether it is procurement by the ministry of education of school books uh, for government schools or whether it is procurement of uh, uh, office cars by <laughs> you know for different government offices or whether it is procurement by isro I mean, it obviously cannot be identical. But then the chap who has prepared these rules, he has tried to do it to ensure that the scope for any malfeasance is reduced. Now, Uh, that guy does not know or does not understand that the ISRO is a different kind of an entity. And... It is if it is going to be in the business of nurturing technologies and nurturing startups, then it has to have a different approach. But that guy is not necessarily anti-national. I mean, don't look upon him. Don't look upon him as an adversary. Now, it is for ISRO that if ISRO is genuine about really nurturing startups and letting them go, letting them rise, then ISRO can convince that guy that, look, my requirement is different. See, we have been talking, I've also been engaged with DRDO for a long time and our defense uh, programs and particularly with regard to technologies and so on. And we've been, as you know, of late, we've been talking about that despite so many years, uh, we are so dependent for all our defense per- defense requirements on imports. Why have we not been able to build an indigenous defense industry? Because if defense ministry is going to do procurement in the same fashion and nobody is interested, I mean, how long, you know, first of all, there is only one buyer, namely the armed services, Ministry of Defense. And suppose there are two guys who are building a tank and you're going to the Ministry of Defence is going to choose and choose one. So the fellow says, "Yeah, why should I?" Then you won't let me export. Why should I put in that kind of effort into all those things? So clearly, that is why from the first time we introduced our uh, defence procurement policy and started the introduction of uh, the involvement of private sector which was all nearly 20 years ago, we have had about 10 different iterations of our defense procurement policy. We've introduced offsets. We have taken out offsets. I mean, you know, but other countries have been through this path and we are still struggling. I mean, it's a case in point. Today, uh, we have been assembling aircraft. Hindustan Aeronautics has been assembling aircraft from the days of God knows when. I mean, recently we did 270 plus, we have just assembled two more than 270 Sukhoi 30 Mark 1s, you know. After the first were flown in, then we did all the rest in our own facility. And yet for major servicing, they have to fly back to Russia. And we have not yet been able to design our own aircraft. Even for the Tejas, the single engine NCA project, which began way back in the 1980s, the engine is imported. So, I mean, you know, somewhere we have to understand that some of these areas are very different, and a different approach in terms of uh, a different regulatory approach is needed. So it has to be. I mean, you know, you see that in uh, you see that in other countries. I mean, how they promote R and D, um, and they would involve let us say both lockheed and boeing would be involved in a project to build the next generation aircraft they would be working on separate areas of technologies and eventually yes one of them would go ahead but then the funding for the technologies is being provided by the government and whatever technology is boeing develops let's say out of that it could have other spin-offs they may not you know, X may not Boeing may not win that contract. That contract may to, may go to Lockheed or maybe Boeing wins that contract and the Lockheed may not win that contract. But then, in the process, Lockheed has also developed certain technologies which could have other spin-offs. So I think we need to. You are absolutely right. I mean, we need to modify the procurement rules when it comes to some of these areas. You can't have the one-size-fits-all kind of an approach. You see, but but then. It's a shared responsibility. If ISRO, if people in ISRO are saying, tell you that look, oh these finance guys, they don't listen to us. No, I mean that's not good enough. It is for ISRO to be able to explain why their requirements are different, because it is for ISRO to be able to carry that conviction and say, look, trust me, you want we have no desire for any malfeasance to take place. We will put in safeguards, but not like this, because this way you are constraining the growth of what we are trying to grow. Find another way. And once, you know, you get that communication, then you will find that you can develop appropriate policy instruments.
0: I mean, all of these seem uh, very large uh, cultural changes in how people approach uh, all of this.
1: Yes, it is. You know why? Because what has happened is that there has been a, a kind of a concentration of authority, as it were. There is a concentration of authority in the sense that you have one person who is who heads… Now, the Department of Space is part of the government of India, right? So, it is headed by the Secretary of Space. Now, who is the Secretary of Space? Chairman Isro. Who is the head of the Space Commission? The same person. So, wherever you look at it, I mean, you know, this is also the model that was followed by uh, the Department of Atomic Energy. You know, Atomic Energy pioneered this model. Baba came in I mean, immediately after independence and then so you have the Department of Atomic Energy, you have an Atomic Energy Commission. Now, the difference between space, ISRO, and atomic energy, I mean, it was all very well when our programs were small, when it was we were sanctioned, when we our international uh, exchanges in these areas were constricted and so on. However, now... There is a difference. Now, atomic energy is the custodian of our um, nuclear security paraphernalia, namely our uh, nuclear weapons capability. So they design it, they develop it, they store it, and so on. Because, as you know, we keep these in demated condition and all the rest of it. And then at a certain stage, I mean, as depending on the requirement, the delivery system and the payload will get mated. Now, so even with regard to nuclear power, NPCIL is an entity of the government of India, of the Department of Atomic Energy. We cannot have under law so far a privately run nuclear power plant. And that is one reason why we have had some difficulties in uh, some of our negotiations now be that as it may but there is a security element in the nuclear domain but that is not so with ISRO right I mean ISRO today is not in the security field so if ISRO has to have a structure which has to promote private sector then the time has come where it has to see what should be the best way in which I can do so. I mean, there is a point, there was a point in time when this consolidation helped in encouraging R&D in the, but then that R&D was entirely within the government. That investment came from within the government. Now, it is not that ISRO did not have private vendors. They did have private vendors, but who were these private vendors? These were large companies like LNT. Like Walchan, like Godrej, and so on. Now, these companies took on work for ISRO, but more out of a sense of prestige, not because the work that they, they were doing for ISRO was contributing in a big way to their balance sheet. I mean, the work that LNT does for ISRO or the work that LT does for Atomic Energy is a tiny fraction of their overall turnover. So they do it out of, that they are also citizens of India. So they do it because they are responsible citizens of India. They do it out of a sense of prestige. That they are involved in an important national project. That is why somebody like Godrej will do it. But you see, when you are looking at startups, whose entire revenue line is based on <laughs> space activity, or their that particular area of work, then that requirement changes. They expect a different uh, relationship. And they're not doing it just for prestige that this is one item, one small element in our uh, balance sheet. And I think that somewhere if we need to make this transition to new space, I think we need to understand. So it is for uh, you and your colleagues be able to convince uh, the decision makers at ISRO and so on, and uh, to be able also to assure them that you and they are on the same team. It's going to be a fun, you know, cultural change that we'll have to see in the next. Uh... Yes, it is. It is a cultural change, but it is needed. And mind you, you will find a much closer parallel in this with the Department of Biotechnology. See, we are one of the few countries that has a separate department of biotechnology. How did how has biotechnology set up its nurturing units, the Biraq funds and so on and so on? How have they promoted uh, the private sector? I mean, today, the biotech sector, if you, I don't know if any of your listeners, but let's say if some of your listeners go to the Genome Valley outside Hyderabad, I mean, just see the way that has been developed. It's a case in point. There is a nurturing element that has been brought in, and it's a very light hand. It is not as if we don't have national labs, but uh, we've been able to, the, I think the Department of Biotechnology, because it's a much younger department, has been able to, and it's a smaller department compared to ISRO. See, when it was set up, it didn't have a monopoly over the R&D and the technical know-how. Whereas in the space sector, what we've had is that there has been a kind of a, um, the technology and the know-how has been, in a sense, all housed within this. World. Right. And, you know, the one thing that I wanted
0: you to comment on is uh, this new uh, approach that U.S. has taken, which is very interesting, especially after the Trump uh, administration, where they formed the National Space Council, because... At the end of the day, you know, the US industry was complaining that there was not enough initiative from the government and the rules and, you know, the NASA administration was very slow with everything and so on. So what they did is, you know, they formed this uh, National Space Council, which is an executive body within the office of the, you know, uh, president of the United States who's overseeing space activities, right? So And then they have representatives from all of the different parts of the government. They have, you know, the... Uh, almost like our Space Commission
1: of sorts. Yes. I mean, in that sense, I would say that the U.S. has done this because people felt that NASA was not getting enough attention from uh, the White House. So, but we don't have that kind of a problem because uh, right from the beginning, the Department of Space has always been located, I mean, the Minister... Is all it has always been through the Prime Minister's office, and the Space Commission brings together the Cabinet Secretary, the Finance Secretary, and the other important to permit that interministerial. But you see, what happens is that invariably people are so busy. All these gentlemen are so busy with their own uh, things that, uh, and they would have little knowledge about uh, space. So. How would they, they would look at it? Oh, I mean, if, if you don't, if you don't really know, then you would look at the finance person, finance, you would say, well, you know, no, no, this year we have, we can't increase, give you a budget increase of 10%, it has to be 6%. Now, well, I mean, but yes, I can understand that at one level it will come down to numbers, but at another level it is because there is inadequate appreciation of what is being done and inadequate communication it is not an absence of top level attention in india because th- you have the instruments here like the space commission and like the the fact that the it is comes under the prime minister's office but i think the problem here is inadequate uh, appreciation
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the thing is uh, where I was interested in this is that uh, unfortunately, even if you look at uh, the Space Commission and the constitution of the Space Commission, even in India, for that matter, there are two things that are missing. One is you don't have any end user represented in that because you have, you know, whoever the finance uh, person and you have the MEA person and you have the defense person and you have, you know, the national security advisor, whoever out there. But then, you know, there is no End users of space represented that, you know, the Ministry of Agriculture or,
1: you know, uh, the Fisheries Ministry or... Uh, that can be easily rectified. I am 100% certain. I am 100% certain that if Secretary Space requests the Cabinet Secretary that at the next meeting of the Space Commission, I would request that one special session be called about the with the end users and get the people from uh, agriculture or metrology or uh, uh, fisheries or whatever to come and talk. I am 100% certain, having spent 38 years in government, that the cabinet secretary will not say no. So, this is, you see, what you are talking about, Narayan, is how do you communicate? Who do you get? Because, you see, if I am going to tell him that I am doing this, 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 then perhaps that guy will say, well, you know, he is naturally going to talk big about himself and his activities. So, you're right. So, therefore, instead of me talking about it, let the end user come and say, look, this is how many jobs our department created. This is how we improved our fisheries yield of this course. This is what we did in terms of uh, advance uh, information about the coming uh, uh, storm or typhoon or something like that and this is how we saved so many lives and whatever it is and this is how we did some crop forecasting or this is how we came to know about uh, a potential uh, locust infestation that was going to come in here and we took appropriate preventive action. I mean, you're right, absolutely. Yeah, the thing is I see merit for creating
0: a end users and industry advisory group because the problem is that the end users and the industry are left out with a voice in the space commission at at this point of time right because there is no representation of the industry in the space commission anyways mm-hmm. and perhaps you know there is also no reason to have the industry there as a part of policy making maybe it's better to isolate end users and the industry and their advice outside of the space commission and creating a special group which delegates uh, where you end users and the industry can delegate among itself and present its set of recommendations or uh, you know its set of uh, use cases or you know, its set of requirements to the space commission and then the space commission can then deliberate on it because the space commission is then completely independent of you know any bias, right, by the industry or by the end users or such, and then you know there's an independent voice that is possible for them to say because at this point of time the way the space commission is set up, you don't have any inputs that are independently coming to the space commission that is beyond what the secretary of the department of space or whoever is saying at the end and the the end user interface at the policy making it is at a much lower level because ISRO does have these meetings, yeah. You're right. But
1: that is because we have, I mean, you see, the Department of Space is like an administrative entity. So, the person who's running it is running it as an, as an administrator. ISRO is a scientific entity and there is a whole different set of issues involved here. And so, that's what I mean. I mean, you know, after all, I mean, the days of uh, Gomi Baba and Sarabhai when these were nascent institutions, See, these were very nascent institutions in the 60s and 70s. And at that time, they were small. And today, they have become huge. And uh, the world has also changed massively. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, the whole notion of startups and financing models has changed completely. I mean, you today, which startup goes to a bank for a loan? I mean, you know, and when do they go to a bank for a loan? <laughs> So, and if you ask somebody who started a factory uh, in uh, 1970, how they started and ask them how they started, the model has changed completely. So, you are absolutely right. But then, so it is for, so the organizational structures also need to undergo a shift if they have to be responsive to today's demands the changing demands of today on that particular sector. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, uh, this is
0: also, I think, the reason why, you know, I can possibly compile, I was thinking about this project, that I should possibly compile a list of 100 people that I know who are Indian entrepreneurs who are set up abroad. Because I I can count them almost by my fingertips today, because I know a lot of them. And I was, you know, saying that, you know, if i can compile a list of 100 companies which were founded by indian co-founders who are all outside of india today and then ask them you know what made you set up a company uh, abroad right absolutely
1: yeah yeah i think we should do a we should do a survey i mean i'm happy to <laughs> participate with you in that survey and uh, you know and i'm sure the results would be very very educative
0: you know, the thing is, I think these are uh, some of the things where, um, you know, as you said, the problem is actually not capital or the problem is not really talent pool. The problem is not really infrastructure. The problem is an absence of a predictable regulatory framework. And and also access to the end user at the end. Because, because even today, you know, for example, even when I was in India, for that matter, the whole notion of uh, access to an end user directly procuring space-based. And, you know, the other part of all of this is, you know, innovation not only in terms of procurement, in terms of how you structure the procurement, it is about also what you procure and how you procure. Because, how, for example, today, if the armed forces want to procure space-based services, so let's say I want to, I as the Indian Army want to procure, uh, change monitoring Uh, service. For example, I have this area of interest in the Indian border where even if a rock moves, I want it to be automatically flagged. And today, this is technologically very capable with Indian companies delivering this service to the Indian Army, right? But then nobody in the Indian Army, as far as I can see, or none of these uh, institutions, including NTRO or RAW or whatever IB or whoever it is, are able to write a tender document that procures a service from an indian space company that says give us a service that where we can monitor change on the indian border right and you need somebody to step up and say i know how to write this tender i know how to write this uh, I, I know how to you know put an rfp for this because traditionally what happens is i've seen this over and over and over first thing that they'll do is they'll say we want this and then the same, second thing that they'll do is they'll say we'll do a survey of all the Indian companies, and then they'll say there's nobody providing the service today, so let us go procure it from the from foreign vendors because there's nobody procuring uh, uh, you know producing that in India today. That doesn't mean that you don't have the elements to be for that thing to be produced in India.
1: No, no, you. That's what I mean by a nurturing environment. But you're absolutely right. You need to have a connect with the end user. Yeah. So these are, you know, uh, the problem is
0: who takes up these topics, because these are so such difficult topics to get consensus on and to get people to agree on to change these things that you need some way of, you know, like getting consensus among people, because this involves, uh, you know, you know, it's like uh, getting a license from WPC and you know, DOS, for example, right? The secretary of uh, department at Felicom is in Delhi and the secretary of DOS is in Bangalore. And if you want to get meetings between two of them and get consensus, you have to go like, you know, to two different places in the country and get some consensus at the end. And it a, becomes an extremely difficult job when you have to interface with like multiple departments of any government, not just in India, right? So at the end, so... These are, you know, very difficult topics that I see that needs to be resolved for any kind of meaningful entrepreneurship to come out of India at the end.
1: Yeah, but although, you know, I think that we can get over this. After all, we also have set up our own now a defense space agency now. Okay, they're very limited. They have two subsets that we've set up. One is for uh, imagery, one is for analysis and things like that. Uh, NTRO, but you know, again, uh, NTRO also has to understand that. Um, I mean, I I have had some uh, interactions with the NTRO when it was getting set up, and you no, know, but I think they are realizing that if they want to develop, uh, let's say, hacking capabilities, then they have to approach it very differently because <laughs> I mean, the guys. Who are going to work for you in that particular thing? Who are going to look for zero day vulnerabilities? Who are going to look for uh, software glitches? Who are going to look for hacking potentials? Who are, I mean, it's a whole, di- they're not interested in the hierarchical thing of under-secretary, deputy secretary, or, you know, second lieutenant, lieutenant, captain, major, lieutenant, colonel, and the whole thing like that. I mean, they, they belong to a different working um culture and yes so if you want to make use of that talent then you have to change the way you work and i think people are realizing it even in very sort of tight security related entities like the army L- defense services like the intelligence like the national technical research you know ntro and so on it's it's a question of uh, you're right i mean it requires a cultural shift and uh, we have to make that happen. And uh, you know we have to keep chipping away at it. Right. So
0: thank you so much for, again, you know, one last final question before I let you go. It's been a long conversation. And thank you so much for spending so much time in uh, debunking a lot of these topics. It's always interesting to learn uh, in these exchanges. So from your perspective, where do you see everything heading in the next five to 10 years because everybody is on a short clock because you know all of these companies who have raised money recently, all of these companies that are trying to do things, uh, at the moment, uh, you know, this new space fashion in India, everything they're on. They can only last so much because funding will yes. eventually run out and, and so on. So there's a short clock on all of them. And uh, we've already seen this introduction of the space bill already two years ago, and I haven't seen any movement on it in, or, or any case after the first draft as such uh, in all of this. And, you know, due to COVID, maybe the government has different priorities and it'll take two more years for anything of this nature to come up. Uh, at the political level as well, so uh, the impact of COVID has been there uh, in, in in what the government uh, needs to focus on. And space may not be, or space entrepreneurship may may be too small an area for uh, as an entity as big as government of India to really focus on. So my you know uh, thoughts are around all of these, and and I wanted to learn from you. For example, where do you see this heading, and uh, do you? In my one nook and corner of my mind, I also feel that this may be too slow in India. And that's my kind of honest opinion, that it it may be too slow for the government to react on all of this. And there probably will be a wave of these early companies that have come up who will be wiped off uh, because of the lack of, uh, uh, you know, fast regulatory changes and access to markets and access to other things that are out there that are needed. And only then there may be one or two companies that may succeed, which may give the case. But then I strongly still believe that, uh, you know, the way things are set up today, a lot of these companies, uh, if there are not many strong changes that will come up very soon, they may really not really succeed to the scale that they are fully potential of. So I wanted to hear about you and your views in, in this direction.
1: Well, I think uh, you have to have, let us say, you need to get, say, about a dozen people who are at different stages. And many of your uh, partners in your podcast, I think, uh, are all who have successfully been able to tap the market. And I think you need to get them together, and they are at different stages. Somebody has been more successful, Admikul Kul or uh, so on. Some Some of these people have been a little more successful, they've been a little more forward. And you need to get them together to say, all right. Now, this, and I think the key here is going to be the draft space activities bill. Because, you see, once you get it into place, then regulations will come out from it under it. And so you need to get that sentiment in it absolutely right. So, what you need to do is to get these people take a look at the draft and then set up a group with, let us say, uh, one of the people who have had some experience of institutions, government institutions. One of the people with uh, maybe uh, a lawyer or somebody like that who has worked in, uh, on some of these fields, you know, in the tech field, for example, and come together with a coordinated thing and then reach out, reach out within government, uh, reach out into media. I mean, you know, people, uh, many of us have, uh, we do, we have regular columns in newspapers, We, you know, we do appear on television, things like that. Uh, reach out to industry organizations. I don't know whether you have your own small industry, nascent industry organization, but let's say, does PT have a space tech unit or CII? If they don't, then maybe reach out to them. To then get that message from these uh, dozen, let's say, a core dozen that you look at. And get that message out so that the space activities bill provides you with the kind of framework that you need. To me, that is the most important thing. Now, once you have that, then, you, then it's good because then at least you have regulations. Regulations can be much more easily amended. The Act, the Parliamentary Act cannot be. That requires a huge effort to amend that then. So, I mean, in a step-by-step thing, I think for the next year, we say the next 12 months, your thing should be to get the bill through and modified before it comes. Because I don't think there is going to be much debate in Parliament. I mean, our Parliament is not known for debating these things with any great depth.
0: Right. So, again, it will be, I think, very interesting to follow up uh, in the next few years. And I... hope things to mature and it goes in the right direction and everybody there uh, can succeed and we can uh, have a very strong industry coming out at the end. I'm pretty hopeful uh, of that uh, eventually happening uh, as such, given the amount of talent and uh, uh, every possibility that we have uh, at the end. So again, thank you so much for uh, taking so much of the time. I hope to catch up with you in Delhi uh, whenever possible and Hope to be vaccinated and uh, catch up with you in Delhi time.
1: Thank you, Narayan. It has been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you.